the impending war between capital and labor, atrocious attempt at murder, a prison keeper on trial, murder at Alamo, Tennessee, and much more on this edition of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for the 24th of March, 1886. Our crime news today is from the Memphis Appeal, and this first article is not necessarily about a crime, but it does tell about what's going on in the country at this time, and it could possibly lead to crime. The impending war between capital and labor. No man can read the news of strikes and impending strikes of combinations of labor and combinations of capital with which the papers are daily filled without a feeling of apprehension of an impending crisis. No man can read the news of today without a feeling of coming calamity worse than civil war. One million of working men, according to the report of the United States Labor Bureau, are out of employment and without the means of buying bread. They have no funds to draw them for support and are without hope, destitute. Enforced beggary and destitution make desperate men. Beggary, enforced by cupidity, makes despairing men. It is hard to die of starvation in the midst of plenty. It is hard to go hungry in a country where wealth is flaunted as an aggressive force by men whose elevation on pedestals of gold is due to questionable, many of them unlawful measures. Such a man can have no bottles of compassion, for no robber can sympathize with industrious labor. What he has come to him, what has had come to him without manual labor and by the subversion of conscience, and he laughs at the hardworking and honest toiler, is a simpleton. If he is appealed to aid his answer is, let them go and make money as I did. But a poor man cannot buy railroads at $12,000 a mile and water them up to 128000 per mile and compel the late farmers, the mar- merchants, and manufacturers to pay six cents per annum on the water. Such wholesale robbery, perpetrated in defiance of the plainest and simplest dictates of fair dealing, are not within the working man's reach, even if he desired to be dishonest, but he is within the reach of these, the most powerful combinations of modern times, to be ground into subjection by a tyranny worse than that of the robin barons of William the Conqueror's day. Reduced to a mere machine and brooded by continuous labor, extending, as in the case of streetcar drivers, to 14 and 16 hours in the 24, the working man has not even time for a moment's serious thought for his future or that of his children. Whatever of civilization he may have had when he began the race of life is thus being steadily stamped out of him, and he is gradually becoming a sullen savage. Out of this sloth of despondency, a cry has gone up for counter-combination, and the knights of labor have been organized to stem the broad, deep, and sweeping current of degradation and slavery and prepare for a contest that may end in anarchy Anarchy, if a way is not found to meet the honest, earnest appeal of the working men for a chance to improve their condition by lessening the hours of labor to eight per day and making such a standard of wages as shall reduce the averages of beggary to the lame, the halt, and the blind. War in any guise is to be avoided, but a war that would find the poor arrayed against the rich is one that must be prevented, and it can be. All sense of justice has not perished out of the country. The standards of fair dealing have not been lost. Apply these, square the differences between employer and employed by the rule which Christ was had embraced all the law and the prophets, and there cannot be a moment's doubt as to the result. Let the rich man, the railroad combinationist, the monopolist, and the manufacturer put himself in the place of the working man, if only for a moment, and strikes will become impossible. Let them remember that men, women, and children must live, and that if they do not live by work, they will by beggary or by robbery. Let them remember that it is easier as well as better to support a poor man in work than in pauperism, and that by lifting him above the accidents, the contingencies, and the extingencies of life, they are increasing the ranks of good citizenship, lessening the ranks of crime, and making for civilization in its highest and best sense by raising the average of self-reliant, self-respecting, and self-dependent men. 
There are large bodies of intelligent working men who have willing who are have willing allies among the professions. These have been discussing the disparities between extreme indignance, squalor, and wretchedness, and the expense of indulgence of palatial splendor and plenty. They have been asking the question. How and by what means can a man in less than 35 years amass or acquire control of $650 million worth of property, a sum greater by nearly $100 million than the estimated true valuation of all the taxable property in each of the states of Georgia, Kansas, and Maine, and nearly as much as that of Tennessee, of Virginia, and Minnesota? How few men have made $1 million even in a long lifetime by their own unaided efforts? In a country whose constitution declares for the equality of all men the means and measures that enable one man to absorb and monopolize the wealth that belongs to honest industry, to an extent like this are the agencies of wrong and of crime. That it is that lies at the base, basis of all strikes. That it is that has put labor and capital at bay, confronting each other as they do today, with an inviolate purpose, that the one of defense and the other of aggression, regardless of consequences. It is, as Henry George says, the house of have and the house of want that are occupying this attitude and are preparing for a collision and that everywhere jostle and scowl at each other. What is to prevent encounter? What is to prevent this threatening war of classes? Compromise, which is better than bloodshed, turmoil, confusion, and destruction of property. The South would today be better off by $9 billion and 600,000 valuable lives had the Negro been voluntarily set free and the Civil War been averted. Regular listeners will recognize this story where Mademoiselle Patty was hissed at. This is a follow-up. Why Patty was hissed, Paris, March 23rd. Mademoiselle Patty writes to the Figaro, explaining how it happened that she was hissed off the stage at Valencia. She says the public of that city persisted in demanding the production of Il Buxeo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and that her refusal to withdraw Travetta led to the hostile demonstration. Jackson, Tennessee, runaway match in high life, sensational affair, special to the appeal. Jackson, Tennessee, March 23rd. A sensation in high life occurred here today about 3 o'clock p.m. by the runaway marriage of R.S. Hester and Miss Rosa Mann, daughter of Captain J.G. Mann of the Illinois Central Railroad. An injunction was granted by Judge T.C. Muse on the grounds of insanity of Mr. Hester and minority of Miss Mann, which was properly served by Deputy Sheriff Person and Chancery Clerk Hurt. But it was disregarded. Atrocious Attempt at Murder, Cleveland, Ohio, March 23rd. An atrocious attempt at murder, which was culminated in the suicide of the would-be murderer, occurred at 2 o'clock this afternoon in Brighton, five miles from Cleveland. For some time past, Charles Meyer, a German aged 25 years, has been in the employ of William A. Van of Brighton, and previous to this he had worked for J.E. Wyman, who lives two miles distant. Meyer called at Wyman's house and without any apparent cause drew a pistol and aiming at Mrs. Wyman's head fired two shots, both of which missed their aim. Meyer then ran from the house and made his escape. The neighbors learned of the affair soon after and started in pursuit. After chasing him for nearly a mile and when about to overtake him, Meyer placed the muzzle of the revolver to his head and blew his brains out. It is a strange affair and no cause is assigned for the act. The Story of a Bottle, Buffalo, New York, March 23rd. A beer bottle containing a slip of paper on which was written the following in lead pencil and a clear hand was fished out of the slip at the foot on, of Louisiana Avenue here yesterday. Quote, I drank the contents of this bottle, committed suicide June 8, 1885. The money with which I bought the stuff was the balance of $15,000. After having emptied the bottle, I thought I would die happy. Carry the news to babe. John Wilson, Chicago, 
unquote. There is no record of the finding of such body here. Impeached. A prison keeper on trial on serious charges. Trenton, New Jersey, March 23rd. The impeachment trial against state prison keeper Patrick H. Lannerty has begun this morning in the Senate chamber before the Senate sitting as a count of impeachment. Lannerty is charged with having violated his oath of office and held criminal intercourse with female convicts. The names of the persons with whom he is alleged to have had intercourse are as follows. Libby Gabberbrandt, murderess, serving a life sentence. Eva Steele, colored, murderess, now out of prison. A. Linhard, forger and shoplifter, now in New York. Mary Smith, now at liberty. And Minnie Schaefer, sneak thief, through whom the charges of criminal intercourse were recently made public. Two of these, Elizabeth Garabrandt and Eva Steele, were called today and both testified to criminal knowledge of the defendant. Garabrandt, on a former investigation, denied any illicit relation with Laverty, but today asserted that her former testimony was false, and the color girl admitted that she is now living an open adultery. Heavy Silk Robbery, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, March 23rd. On Sunday night, thieves entered the store of Jones & Fisher, number 1318 Chestnut Street, and made off with $1,500 worth of silk. Last night, they went back again and carried off six silks valued at $2,000. Murder at Alamo, Tennessee. White man clubbed to death by a Negro. Sensational incident in the Malloy Lee trial, the Nebraska tragedy, desperate fight, special to the appeal. Brownsville, Tennessee, March 23rd. At Alamo, Crockett County, Sunday night, Dan Guthrie White was killed by a Negro named Ridley. A crowd of men were quarreling in front of a saloon. Guthrie walked up and in an offensive way asked what was the matter. Ridley struck him over the head with a stick, knocked him down, and beat his brains out. The Negro was taken to Trenton to jail for fear of lynching. Now here is an update on the Malloy Lee case. Special to the appeal, Springfield, Missouri, March 23rd. Mrs. Malloy was unable to appear in the courtroom this morning, and Justice Savage adjourned court until tomorrow morning. The fair defendant became very sick about 7.30 o'clock this morning after nervous prostration. At intervals, she vomited and was troubled with cramps in the region of the stomach. There was a report that she had attempted to commit suicide by poisoning and that vomiting was caused by a pneumatic administered by the physician, but this report is an, is an, authority, an authoritatively contradicted. Tonight, she was reported better. Her illness is generally attributed to Graham's sensational disclosures as to their adulterous relationships. The body of Sarah Graham was found at the bottom of a well 50 feet deep. There were no noticeable wounds, abrasions, or contusions on the body except an abdominal cut and a gunshot, gunshot wound. Experts say if the body was thrown in within six or eight hours after death, wounds, etc. would be observed. The theory of the state, consequently, is that the body was lowered into the well by a rope. 20 Years Imprisonment Detroit, Michigan, March 23rd. Sunday night, ties were placed on the Michigan Central Track near Galesburg, but the obstruction was discovered in time to prevent serious damage. Last night, Henry Seymour was arrested and confessed the crime. He said he had a grudge against a neighbor and placed the ties near his house, hoping to direct suspicion against him. This morning, he was arraigned in court, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to 20 years in the penitentiary within 48 hours of committing the act. This next article is a follow-up to the story about the man surrounded in the barn. 
The Great Nebraska Tragedy, Oakland, Nebraska, March 23rd. The greatest tragedy ever known in Burke County, in fact, the greatest known in the history of Nebraska, has ended. For 36 hours, the daring desperado, the murderer of H.C. Stedman, Peter Johnson, and Edgar Everett, the man who defended his life with the desperation of a fiend, held a crowd of pursuers, at times numbering 300 men at bay. He could not be taken alive. He knew that surrendering meant certain death at the hands of the enraged citizens. The fight he made was a remarkable one. Amply supplied with ammunition and weapons, he defied every assault made to capture him in his frail fort. Late last night, it was decided to fire the barn and force him either to surrender or stand in the midst of the flaming structure and suffer cremation. By some means, a shed that was attached to the stable was ignited. The murderer, seeing the barn was on fire, sent into the crowd about 20 shots. Fire was open on him with Winchester rifles from all sides, and it is supposed he was killed before he could get out. After the fire had subsided, the remains were found in a large pile of oats which protected him a great deal. Both arms were burned off and a part of both legs. A part of his head was shot off, and many bullet holes were found in his body. It is thought by some that he was wounded in his limbs before taking to the barn, or he would have endeavored to escape. The body was raked from the pile of smoking oats and buried in an adjoining cornfield crowd was bent on taking the charred remains and feeding them to the hogs and the sheriff had hard work resisting the crowd and accordingly the remains obtained human burial. The murderer was of light build and five feet six inches tall. He has been going under the name of Alan Wright. Johnson's barn in which he took refuge is completely destroyed with its contents. The barn and contents were valued at $4,500 which amount it is supposed the county will pay. If not the amount will be raised by private contributions. Besides this loss, the farm is very much damaged by being cut up by the wagons, horses, etc. Edgar Everett, the man whom Wright shot during the pursuit, is 26 years of age. He has a wife and two children. The doctors are doing all in their power to ease his pains, but death is certain. The other wounded persons are doing well. The sheriff has Wright's pony, saddle, and revolver, which will be sold. Fight between cowboys and horse thieves. Bismarck, Dakota Territory, March 23rd. A party of cowboys came upon a number of horse thieves in the timber on the Missouri River Bank 100 miles north Saturday, and after an exchange of several volleys from revolvers and rifles, the thieves gave up the fight and attempted to escape. Two of them were killed. The cowboys followed close upon the heels of the remainder, but a narrow strip of heavy timber prevented any effective shooting. After a chance of a mile, the horse thieves, four in number, found themselves in a clearing and turned to the river with the hopes of crossing the ice. They had gone about 40 rods on the honeycombed ice when two of the animals broke through, and as the cowboys continued shooting, no attempt was made by the horse thieves to save their struggling companions who were carried beneath the ice on their horses. The remaining outlaws returned to the shore and, throwing up their hands, surrendered to the cowboys, who, after tying their hands fast, fastened them upon the backs of ponies and took them away to parts unknown, but is supposed to their camp for an old-fashioned cowboy trial. And now an update on Alderman Jane from New York. Still languishing in a prison cell. New York, March 23rd. Alderman Jane is still languishing in his prison cell, but his friends are making vigorous efforts to secure bail for him. They are, and this part of the article is covered up, something, the, pr the amount by... Again, that part's covered up, which they will place in any reputable householder's hand to induce him to go bail. Jane spent a quiet night in jail. He ate a hearty breakfast this morning and indulged in a constitutional of 20 minutes with the other prisoners. He has not yet lost hope of eventually getting out of jail. 
assuming formidable proportions, Montreal, March 23rd. The forgeries committed by the absconding accountant of the Bank Nationale of Montreal are assuming formidable proportions as the investigation progresses. The names of two depositors of the bank have been found to have been forged to checks amounting to $14,000, and it is feared many others will be discovered. Released from jail to be arrested for murder, Omaha, Nebraska, March 23rd. Last November, the confession of a convict in the Nebraska penitentiary was made public, which implicated a fellow convict named Pearson. He charged the latter with the murder of Watson B. Smith, former clerk of the United States Court. It was one of the most noted tragedies that ever occurred anywhere in this country and was the result of a contest between the temperance people and the saloon keepers. Pearson's term of imprisonment expired today, and he will be immediately arrested, charged with the murder of Smith. The United States officials, with the proper legal papers, left last night for Lincoln for the purpose of making the arrest. Jack Nugent, whom Pearson says gave the money to secure Smith's murder, is not now in Omaha and is believed to have fled. In trouble for winking at a lynching, Eatontown, New Jersey, March 23rd. Constable Libenthal of Eatontown, who arrested Mingo Jack and lodged him in jail the night of the lynching, was this morning himself arrested on a charge of manslaughter and taken to the Freehold Jail. It seems that he was aware that an effort would be made to lynch the Negro, but took no steps to prevent it. The strike in Kansas, inconveniences and losses to business at Kansas City rapidly increasing, factories closed up, exciting day at Atchison. Sedalia, Missouri, March 23rd. The monotony of the strike was suddenly broken this afternoon in a very serious way. Shortly before 3 o'clock, the Missouri Pacific people succeeded in getting out a freight train composed of engine and 14 cars. As the train passed the stockyards running 10 or 15 miles an hour, some torpedoes were exploded on the track and several men jumped aboard. When the train was three miles out and gaining at a good speed, the rail suddenly spread, sped, spread and the engine and four cars went into the ditch. Police officer Mason, who was on the train, had an arm broken, and Special Policeman Neal had a leg broken at the knee. Division Superintendent Frey, who had charge of the train, was severely bruised, as was also Yardmaster Leons, who was on board. Engineer Bradley and Free Fireman Brezhanag escaped unhurt. Conductor Spangler was in the caboose at the time of the wreck. He states that a brakeman named King, who was in a night of labor and who was on the train, told him to look out at the crossing. The track was torn up for a distance of 200 yards and will block the road until workmen can be sent out and repair it. An examination of the rail showed that the fish plates had been removed and thrown upon an abatement. The bolts had been removed and the nuts then replaced. The knights of labor deny all knowledge of the villainous work. A farmer working in a field near the scene said that he had seen no one about the track during the day. There is much excitement here tonight and the feeling against the strike grows more outspoken. Another exciting day at Atchison, Atchison, Kansas, March 23rd. This has been another exciting and eventful day in the strike. At 12.45 o'clock this morning, the 10 men on guard at the Missouri Pacific Roundhouse were surprised by the appearance of 35 or 40 masked men. The guards were corralled in the oil room by a detachment of the visitors who stood guard with pistols drawn, while the rest of the force seriously disabled 12 locomotives which stood in the stalls. They held possession of the house about 50 minutes and upon taking leave notified the imprisoned guards that they must not attempt to leave the room until the expiration of 20 minutes. At noon there was another exciting event. A large number of strikers and others seized a freight train below town bound for Kansas City. They climbed upon it in scores and tightened the brakes to prevent its further progress, uncoupled the cars and threw the links and pins into the river and killed the engine. 
Marshall Price was present, but as the train was outside the city limits, he was powerless. No United States Marshals were present. The strikers later seized the last switch engine. A road engine happened to be at hand, which is doing duty in the yards. Attempted assassination at Houston, Galveston, Texas, March 23rd. The News Houston Special says an attempt was made to assassinate Mayor W.R. Baker tonight. He is running as an independent candidate. He was out tonight making campaign speeches and was going with a party from one meeting to another when a man on horseback called him to one side. As Baker stood talking to him, the horseman demanded that he withdraw from the canvas and upon Baker's refusal, fired three shots at him, all of which just grazed his head. The would-be assassin then made his escape under a shower of bullets fired by the mayor's friends. And here's an update on the Broadway Surface Road from New York. New York, March 23rd. Judge Lawrence today granted a temporary injunction upon application of John C. Gray restraining the Broadway and 7th Avenue Railroad, the Broadway Surface Road, or the 23rd Street Railway Company, or any of its officers or directors from disposing of stock in their roads, save into the hands of a receiver named by the court. The injunction also forbids the leasing of any of these lines to any company or corporation in which Peter A. B. Widener, William L. Elkins, or William H. Kimball are interested. Woman murdered, Indianapolis, Indiana, March 23rd. At Hagerstown, Wayne County this afternoon, N.S. Bates quarreled with a woman who struck him with an axe handle. Bates wrested the weapon from her, struck her one blow with it, and then made a slash at her with a pocket knife, nearly beheading her. The woman fell to the floor dead. Bates was placed under arrest and taken to Richmond for safekeeping. And now we have a bigger update on the alderman's situation in New York. Jane's confession and possession of Captain Burns of the police and will be produced so soon as he is put on trial for bribery and corruption. New York, March 23rd. The Times says, It is time that this air of mystery about the confession of Alderman Jane should be dissipated and the actors in the scene in Police Inspector Burns' drawing room last Wednesday night should be placed in their true light before the gaze of the public. The Times is in a position to state on the most indubitable authority that Alderman Jane on that night, which has become historical in the record of the Broadway franchise cell, did make a confession to Mr. Burns. The Times is in a position to say that Mr. Jane was not entrapped by Mr. Burns as the result of any shrewd detective work, but that he made his confession deliberately as a choice of the lesser of two certain evils trusting to escape from the punishment of his crime in the courts because he knew that in case he refused, he would be arrested on charge from which there would be no hope of escape. In other words, Inspector Burns put the twist on the alderman, to use the elegant expression of the detective vocabulary, and the alderman squealed. This result was primarily due to the action of one public-spirited woman, Mrs. Hamilton, who was willing to brave notoriety for the sake of doing her duty, and placed in the hands of the investigating committee the story of the disappearance of her silverware in the shop of Alderman Jane. Then, for the first time, the general public was notified that Jane was a fence, but it was not the first intimation that Inspector Burns had of the fact. The alderman had been engaged in the business of receiving stolen goods for nearly 10 years, and this fact was known at headquarters long before Mrs. Hamilton applied to Inspector Burns to aid her in the recovery of her silver. 
The fence and the detective had been friends, and Jane's operations were well known to Burns. How well known was shown in some degree by the revelations in regard to Mrs. Hamilton's silver, which placed Mr. Burns in a peculiar position as a friend and advisor of Jane. It was this position from which the inspector determined to extricate himself by throwing Jane overboard, and the alderman was given very distinctly to understand that unless he united in the scheme and diverted attention from the fence business by confessing to the bribery, things would be made decidedly unpleasant for him. Alderman Jane was not long in making up his mind. He knew that Inspector Burns could send him to Sing Sing if he chose in very short order, and he preferred to take the chance of a trial for bribery, which gave him some hope of escape. He consented to make the confession, which was redound to the credit of Burns as a great detective, a great work of detective skill, and he went to Burns' house for that express purpose, after arranging for a bondsman to be prepared to save him from being locked up. The full details of the alderman's confession will probably not be known until his trial on the indictment for bribery, but the main facts may be told here without the permission of Inspector Burns. Mr. Jane said he had been paid for every railroad franchise for which he had voted since he had been a member of the Board of Aldermen, including the 42nd Street, the Chamber Street, the Wall Street, and the Broadway Railroads. He said that no projector of a new line thought of getting a franchise without paying the alderman well for it. In the case of the Broadway Road, he received $20,000 for his vote, and the money was paid to him by Alderman Robert E. DeLacy, who was known as his most intimate friend and companion. He did not mention by name any other alderman who had been paid, because, as he said, the matter was always arranged that nobody but the bribed alderman and the man who paid him the money knew of the transaction. He knew on general principles that others were paid for their votes as he was paid, and he supposed that DeLacy was the man who paid them. He did nothing in the way of voting without being paid, and from the character of his companions, he knew that they acted in the same manner, although he could not swear that any man but himself received a dollar. That was the sum and substance of Jane's confession, which he will be at perfect liberty to retract when placed at the bar of justice. Heavy Safe Robbery, Madison, Indiana, March 23rd. The safe in Loden's store at Canaan was blown open before daylight and $10,000 in notes, $10,000 in registered government bonds, and $120 in cash stolen. The post office at the same place was also robbed. The Cincinnati Election Frauds, Cincinnati, Ohio, March 23rd. The House Committee on Privileges and Elections, which has been making investigations into the alleged election frauds at Cincinnati, will submit its report tomorrow, recommending that Harlan, Republican, be seated in place of Butterfield, Democrat. The report declares that all the Republican members are entitled to their seats, which includes nine members who were given seats at the beginning of the session and one on prima facie showing made by the committee. The Civilized Indians, Ufala, Indian Territory, March the 23rd. The delegates from the five civilized tribes of Indians in convention here have entered into a compact pledging themselves not to cede or in any manner alienate to the United States any part of their present territory. Provisions are made for the punishment of crime, restoration of stolen property, chains of citizenship from one nation to another, and suppression of the sale of ardent spirits. The next section of the paper is titled News in Brief, Dover, New Hampshire, March 23rd. 
An $8,500 shortage was today discovered in the accounts of city treasurer Franklin Freeman, who died two weeks ago. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, March 23rd. Six Hungarian miners were arrested at Walston Mines near Ponxatani on Monday and committed to jail charged with unlawful assembly. Their crime consisted in going into the mines to work after had been having made a demand for an advance in wages. Five times married, a pretty little woman's varied matrimonial experience, Newport, Rhode Island, March 21st. An extraordinary case of bigamy has been developed here, the first arrest being made last night in the person of James McMahon. The person charged with bigamy is a young woman of most respectable parentage. She is an exceedingly interesting person, beautiful and accomplished. Her name originally was Annetta Lee Wright, her parents residing in Jamestown. She first married a well-to-do man, Alonzo Teft, from whom she was subsequently divorced. Next, she married a farmer named Hall who owned property in Jamestown in the Narragansett. Mr. and Mrs. Hall did not live happily and a separation took place, but no divorce proceedings were had. Some time ago, she met a young man named James McMahon, whose father is a city contractor. Mr. McMahon claims that he did not know his wife's status before his marriage to her, but there is evidence that he did afterward because he was informed of all the circumstances. On the 18th, McMahon applied for and obtained a marriage license, and the couple were married by Reverend Mr. Clark, pastor of the Thames Street Methodist Church. When this fact was discovered by Mr. McMahon the elder, he was very indignant, and he, became, he made application to the chief of police for a warrant for the pretty woman to be arrested on a charge of bigamy. The chief declined, but subsequently placed the matter before the grand jury, and the result of the elder McMahon's stir in the affair is that not only has an indictment charging bigamy been found against Mrs. Hall, but one charging adultery was found against his own son. This he evidently did not expect. Young McMahon was arrested last night. Meanwhile, Mrs. Hall has gone to Fall River. The case is exciting considerable talk. The police officials have received information to warrant their belief that Mrs. Hall has two other husbands living besides those mentioned. Woodville, Tennessee. A brutal outrage perpetrated in the name of cleanliness. Correspondence of the Appeal. Woodville, Tennessee, March 22nd. There was a terrible fight on the Fergasson Place Friday night in which John Swoonson Colored was fatally hurt, perhaps. It seems that Swoonson had been hired to hang the superintendent. There is an unwritten law among the hands to search every new hand and, f and see if they have body lice. Swoonson was searched and one louse was found, but he persisted that he did not have lice. He went off to the barn to sleep that night. Ed Phillips, Jim Basin, Nelson Wood, Charles Mason, Negroes, and hands working on the place went down to the barn and thought they would scare Swoonson off the place. He refused to be bluffed when the crowd threw brickbats at him, striking him about the head and body. His skull was nearly fractured, and his head was almost filled with pieces of brick. Up to yesterday at 11 o'clock, he was unconscious and cannot live, it is said. Ed Phillips, Jim Brayson, and Nelson Wood were arrested and on the way to Ripley escaped from the hack and have not been caught as yet. Charles Mason was not arrested. Lexington, Mississippi, the two robbers caught who escaped Sunday morning. Correspondence of the Appeal. Lexington, Mississippi, March 22nd. The sheriff has just returned from Durant, where he succeeded in catching the two robbers who escaped in the firing Sunday morning, of which I wrote you. They were tracked by bloodhounds. 
One was shot in the hand and had to have it amputated this morning. $495 was found on the two. They are now in jail. Denounced on highway robbery. Albany, New York, March 23rd. Governor Hill yesterday affixed his signature the law requiring street railway franchises to be sold to the highest bidder. In the course of his message to the legislature, the governor reviews the Broadway surface railroad job in the most scathing terms, denouncing it as proved highway robbery and suggests further legislation to modify the act as to towns outside of New York City. The next section of the paper is titled City News. The case of Foy for killing Annie Stokes in the old library building was on trial yesterday. The postmaster at Bell's, who was assaulted a short time since, died yesterday morning. Five men have been arrested. The robber, who was killed after having robbed a widow at Aberdeen last Saturday, resides in this city. His mistress, a Negro woman, resides on St. Martin Street. That's the crime news for the 24th of March, 1886. Please come back again for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.